the camp is like a stone thrown in the water and the movement is kind of rippling outward from that. Rip camp was really heartening to people and inspiring them. And people were saying things to each other like, I don't know, does people getting out on the street ever make a difference? And people would say, well, you should watch Crip Camp, you know? <laughs> Nicole Noonan, one of the directors of the 2021 DuPont award-winning documentary, Crip Camp. You're listening to On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department at Columbia Journalism School. I'm joined today, as I always am, by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. She runs the DuPont Columbia Awards. How you doing, Lisa? I'm good, Abby. I'm excited to kick off the new season of the show and, of course, the beginning of the fall semester. Yes, a new fall semester is upon us, which is always exciting, but a little sad too, because it means that summer is over. But before we let go of that summer feeling, today we're going to hear about a movie that actually started at a summer camp. We're talking about Crip Camp, a documentary that begins in the early 70s at a unique sleepaway camp for disabled teens. It then explores the camp's connection to nearly 20 years of the disability rights movement. That's right. It's a powerful film, and one we should add that went on to be nominated for an Oscar this year. It's about a group of people whose representation in the media is, as one of the filmmakers, Jim Lebrecht, told me, not always very accurate or complete. Jim not only co-directed the film, but he also attended the camp as a teen in the 70s, and he's in the film. You can see him in this incredible archive footage they unearthed that was shot by a little-known documentary team called the People's Video Theater. I spoke with Jim and co-director Nicole Noonan last December as we were prepping for the 2021 DuPont ceremony, and I got to ask about questions of representation and so much more. And you even got to ask them about the Obamas. Crip Camp was one of the first documentaries produced by the Obamas production company, Higher Ground. It's kind of hard to imagine getting notes from them. I know. And they talked about that in this interview. In the interview, they also connect the camp to disability activism years later. The film has this amazing archival of now-grown camp folks, especially a woman named Judy Human, who led a record-breaking sit-in to force the creation of disability protections. Those are protections commonly referred to as 504 laws, so you'll hear them make that reference in the interview as well. So let's get to it. This is an edited version of the conversation with Lisa and Crip Camp filmmakers Nicole Noonan and Jim Lebrecht. Lisa, you got to tell Jim and Nicole that their film had won a DuPont, which is always fun and in this case got a little bit emotional. This is not just a call to interview you. It's also a call to tell you that you have been selected as a winner of the DuPont Columbia Awards for 2021. That's amazing. That's wonderful. Thank you. Wow. It's a huge honor. It has been a really long slog, you know, to to try to tell this story and to do it justice. And so I think um, this makes me feel like it's going to stand the test of time and kind of go in the historical record. Indeed, six years is a long time, full of a lot of setbacks or this might not happen or we can't break through. And, um, and so when you see tears in our eyes, 
I think it's a sense of validation that feels like there is this release. Like, and especially coming from a community that has been dismissed so often. Um, to know that our, not only that people appreciate our filmmaking, but appreciated the value of this story and how important it was. I think it's that word validation. You know, for the disability community, a huge challenge is to, to take people out of kind of a charity model of the way that they look at disability and to look at it as a civil rights issue. And so I think there's something about this prestigious journalism award acknowledging, you know, this story that makes it feel kind of like we've we've come out of that. We've come out of that, you know, oh, isn't it nice that we gave people with disabilities what we gave them in the ADA? And then maybe people will finally say, no, this is like a, a, a tenacious, incredible, resourceful community that fought one of the greatest civil rights battles that we've ever seen. You make a film like this and you want it to be everything. You want it to be entertaining and you want it to be informative and to elicit change in you. But to have a recognition about the kind of journalism that our film represents, especially coming from a community for which, to be honest, the stories have not been very full. You know, I've made a couple of documentaries and for years and years and years, you have to, you just have to keep going on faith. And, and every minute you're saying, is this all going to be for nothing? Is this all going to be for nothing? And so I'm sure that that is part of what you fought against internally and externally. I mean, you start off with a lunch that Nicole and I had. And, and, and because I, I've been working with her for so many years as her mixer and say, and saying, Nicole, I, you know, there's some films around disability I think that you would might really like to do. And actually, the one that was like an offhand remark saying, there's a story about these people going from New York out to California, the disabled civil rights movement. I think there's a connection there. And then six years pass, and, and here we are today. You know, we're fundamentally a journalism award that's about substantive original reporting in the public interest. So tell me why this is that. I think this is that um, partially because, well, for, I guess I'd say three reasons, you know, one is that I, I think the story of Camp Jeanette was not known and reported or, or, or written about in any kind of depth, nor was its connection to the disabled civil rights movement. There were some academics who had started um, looking at that, whom we consulted with. Um, we did a lot of research, original research. There were grassroots research efforts by folks from Camp Jened, like Denise Sher Jacobson, who's been writing a book about it, um, who actually went out and did some rogue interviews because she was so convinced that someday the world would want to know the story of this camp and the role that it played. Um, but nobody had really tied those things together in any kind of significant way. So indeed, it did go from kind of a, a theory Jim had um, to something that we um, thoroughly investigated um, and, and sort of proved, um, both, both through the interviews we did, but also the really extensive archival research, which, which showed how those, those threads kind of wove together. And then, you know, additionally, I think that there was original reporting that we did through all the archival research and editing in terms of the story of um, the movement itself, and particularly the 504 sit-in in the, in the Bay Area. And so I would say that um, for, for all those reasons, it, it, it definitely was 
journalism as much as it was also sort of, you know, filmmaking of an immersive and entertaining nature. And this may not answer your question really specifically, but one has to point out Evan White, the reporter, who said, you know, and he says this in the film, I like people that make trouble. And he saw the value in the story. There was some local coverage and stuff. He got embedded with us. He went to Washington, D.C. And it is because he was there on the ground that, you know, after weeks and weeks of struggle to get the Carter administration to sign these 504 regulations, he posts a story and it gets picked up. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And Califano had to sign these regulations. The Carter administration could not ignore this anymore. And if it wasn't for that journalism, that journalist, excuse me, Evan White, and who he is, and who he is to this day, it might not have happened. Oh, I agree. I mean, you know, it really, um, I think one of the reasons we were excited to include that story, other than that it was something that the community itself wanted to honor, People kept bringing it up over and over and over again to the point where we sort of realized, you know, oh, Evan White is considered by the community to be a part of the community, you know, for his allyship. That was something we wanted to honor, but also it felt really good to tell a story about the importance of local journalism. That's so interesting because we have a big commitment to local journalism at DuPont and we honor every year. It's kind of a mantra with us. So that's a great point to make too. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the structure of this? Because... There was a way in which you set up this story that had to do with, you know, the first 40 minutes of it being about one thing in which you met and grew to know know and learn about these kids and you saw the world through their eyes and you and you got to know them. So there was whatever sense of, oh, I can't watch this kind of thing is dispelled. You being one of them, Jim. And then you sort of took a turn. Is that something that evolved over time? How, what, how intentional was that? It was very intentional. We knew that if we let people watch the sort of story of the disability rights movement from the point of view that people usually come to disability with, they wouldn't see it the way we wanted them to see it. We needed to be able to shift the way people view disability and people with disabilities pretty drastically in order for them to hold the story in the way we wanted them to hold it. And so the camp gave us the opportunity to do that. But in order to do it well, we had to sort of, you know, uh, really create kind of an experience for the viewer where you feel like you're coming into the camp. You're not too sure, you know, if you're comfortable, you overcome your discomfort, you make friends, you know, you you end up kind of feeling like you're a part of the community. So then when you move outside the camp and you start seeing the campers viewed through news cameras, really. You feel like you're watching your friends in the news. You don't feel like you're watching people who are other. That was really important to us. And for a while, you know, we were getting advice like, oh, maybe you should actually start with the ADA and then flash back so people know why they should care about this camp. And and we sort of stuck to our guns because we said, you know, we really are sort of thinking of this as a uh, non-traditional documentary structure. But the structure in our hearts was sort of like, the camp is like a stone thrown in the water and the movement is kind of rippling outward from that. And you were one of those kids, Jim. So what was that like for you? I I sometimes joke that every film needs to have a really cute little kid, you know, crawling down the stairs and getting a glass of water. You know, like this has been 
an amazing experience. I mean, when Nicole and I got this hard drive, all these videos that the People's Video Theater shot, it was like this time capsule. And to really be able to kind of go back and see this. And, you know, there are things that to see, to see Judy Human so young in her life as a natural organizer. And that we see in that example of trying to get consensus about what we should have for dinner, you know, because it's the cook's night out. Get some suggestions as to what you want, and when we come back in a group together, um, we'll decide what we're going to have to eat, okay, if the cook is off on Wednesday. And then have that echoed so beautifully during the 504 sit-in. Just, you know, just, just amazing. Was it painful for you as someone who was watching themselves as a younger, you know, a younger version of themselves? Was it, I guess, what emotions were evoked? You know, I think bittersweet is a word you could use, but it's not something that really kind of covers it. Um, so it was really, um, emotionally, it was difficult at times. Um, because, yes, you're looking back at your youth and who you were, you know, over 40 years ago. And so, you know, we all have our aches and pains in our bodies. And, boy, I'm not climbing around like that anymore. Um, and I, I, and also the sense of loss of those people. I mean, you know, Nancy D'Angelo was my first girlfriend. And to be able to see her and I together in this and my arm around her, there was a moment mm -hmm. there that when we were reviewing footage that I had like this sense memory of how soft her shoulder was. And um, and the other thing I maybe might be, you know, I, I have to say is that Nicole, she was working with our editor and I, I came in and they said, Jim, we wanted you to see this. And I don't remember exactly what the scene was, but I said, um, oh my God, maybe people will finally understand. Yeah, so that's the kind of emotional journey that I have been on. Um, but you can't go on this kind of quest or journey without the people you're working with and who they are. Fortunately, Nicole and I have known each other for a long time. And there is a friendship. But we have never been this close. And there was a trust that we had with each other that was essential. And it is something that happened with our editors and the other people on this film. You, you can't talk about things like the fact that I wore diapers until I was 15. Unless you have faith that that is useful and that it'll be portrayed in a way that is going to move your story forward and underline the experience of disability. And I had that opportunity here. And it's very, I, I mean... I, I, I don't think that happens every day. It's that trust. Corbett O'Toole, who's in our film, said, you know, Jim, you know, you know, I wouldn't be talking if it wasn't that you were a member of our community who's one of the filmmakers here. Because I trust that you'll know what to do with this and not blow it. Not turn it into what we often talk about, like inspiration porn. Well, actually, that raises a question that I wanted to ask you because, you know, this notion of representation and storytelling 
and you know nowadays there is a lot more inclusion in the process how important was it for you Jim to co-direct this film um, and how important is it for there to be this kind of intermingled process I mean it's a it's a it's actually a question for both of us very deeply Nicole asked me to direct with her I was please just I, I love you as a filmmaker. Please do this. Look, the disabled community suffers to this day under the pain and dismissal of stigma that is perpetrated by what we see in the media. And these stories in film or in journalism are going to repeat themselves because they're the stories that have always been told and everybody knows it. I don't know, does it sell papers or whatever? It does great harm. It does great harm when you're you're seeing people in wheelchairs being applauded for simply showing up. And it's not going to change until we are really, really part of the, the media, that we are the film critics, that, um, that we are the people writing the stories and we have the outlets to do that. And, you know, a great thing happened at Sundance where they did an outreach to writers from the disabled community to come to... Sundance, you know, and, and that has all these different layers of, you know, really positive things happening. But there was just an article I saw the other day and the questions that Kristen Lopez was asking in this IndieWire article, only somebody from our community would ask. And that those are, you know, those are the, you know, the questions around representations and what is important that with our lived authentic experience are not only important and 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 will counteract these negative stereotypes and stigma but it adds to the breadth of variety of the kind of stories people are reading about you know if we're missing if if we're a missing color in the landscape of journalism it's just a little grayer without us I, I know there are a lot of different groups that are saying those kinds of things now, and I have to, I'm going to ask you about the protests in the film and this pivotal move when, you know, Judy Human corrals everyone and gets them to do this massive sit-in. It's impossible not to compare it to what's happening today and the current state of protests in this country where many different groups are saying, you know, this, this has to be done and it has to be done now. Um, do you feel an affinity with the Black Lives Matter movement as a broader cultural moment? Yes, I mean, it was it was really important to us um, to include the story, for instance, of the, the Black Panthers and their contribution to the sit-in, you know? And, um, and the fact that they brought food, you know, three meals a day for 28 days while people sat in the building is not insignificant. It's actually like, completely critical. Like the, the sit-in would not have lasted or have been successful w without that. And um, and we knew that, that it was important to include this kind of beautiful example of intersectionality and um, cross-movement um, collaboration in the film, but we didn't anticipate that the film would come out this spring and then be being watched, you know, on Netflix by people this summer, um, in this this summer of this incredible movement for Black Lives, 
And um, and we saw so many people commenting on on social media, basically seeing the success of the movement of the cross movement collaboration, but also the actual political success um, that was achieved. And Crip Camp was really heartening to people and inspiring them. And people were saying things to each other like, I don't know, does people getting out in the street ever make a difference? And people would say, well, you should watch Crip Camp, you know? <laughs> and I think that's why, um, you know, revisiting these stories out of history is so so important. And I, I think often uh, movement stories don't get remembered or lifted up as much as they should. And so, um, you know, the next generations of activists are sort of reinventing the wheel. So to that extent, it felt really good to be able to be any kind of inspiration for the movement that was happening today you know but um on the other hand the movement the the disability rights movement has really evolved since the film kind of um you know leaves off with the signing of the ada and today there's a younger um more diverse group of disability justice activists who are demanding that the voices and leadership and experiences of people who've been traditionally marginalized within the disability movement, um, specifically BIPOC uh, queer folks in the, in the movement, should, should be centered. And um, so we felt it was really important to align with that movement for our impact campaign. And we've been working with some extraordinary disability justice activists and our, with our impact producer, Andrea Levant, um, to, to really try to kind of create those conversations where the story of Crip Camp can kind of be seen in light of, you know, where where is the movement today and where do we want it to go and how do we want it to be, um, you know, evolved in a certain sense to where um, people aren't, aren't left out. So I, I just want to switch gears for a minute because I want to just understand a little bit about the connection with the Obamas. How did that happen and have you had... Do you have contact with them? Like, how did they get to your film? Well, um, we have this amazing executive producer named Howard Gertler, um, and he read about Higher Ground, the Obama's production company with Netflix being created in the um, trades. And he instantly said, we have to get the story to them because Judy Human worked in the Obama State Department and it's a story of grassroots activism and you know young people trying to change the world. And so we were able to get a trailer that we had cut together. We still hadn't even put together an assembly of the film uh, to Priya Swami Nate and Antonia Davis at Higher Ground. And they were immediately captivated and called and said, you know, we can't stop watching this. And our, our bosses feel the same way, which was, you know, very thrilling for us. Um, and uh, and they came up to Berkeley, spent a long time in our edit room and said, we really want to roll up our sleeves. And we're very hands-on. Um, and so it's true, actually. I mean, Higher Ground was very hands-on, but also the Obamas themselves watched three cuts of the film and, and gave feedback. And um, You got notes from the Obamas? We did. <laughs> did they say, you got to get rid of this? And you got to, did you agree with all their notes? I mean, they weren't, they were great notes because they weren't like enact this and act that kind of notes. They were questions or things to consider or things that they'd like to know more about, you know? And sometimes they, sometimes we did actually enact them and other times we used them to inform our thinking, you know, about things. But, um, but they were very supportive and open and kind of um, really supported our kind of non-traditional process for, um, for, finding our way towards what the story is in. Oh, tell, what was that? 
your non-traditional process? Well, by, by that, what I mean is just we didn't write the story too prescriptively. We really did try to find it in the archival footage based on what were the kind of like immersive, powerful, emotional things that we could draw out of the footage, you know? So we added characters kind of late in the game. We were constantly just sort of, you know, reviewing and discussing in the edit room. And, um, and they were very patient as we found our way towards what the story is. It was more like, even though it was an archival film, I would say the process was more like what you do when you're making a verite film. You know, finding the scenes mm-hmm. in the archive. I, I love the way documentaries just reveal themselves. When you, when you're when you're fortunate enough to have the you know resources to be able to have the time and and do the digging and such that right. uh, it always just amazes me. And and certainly I you know just as a sound mixer for many many years, I would see an early cut of a film and then uh, to do a bit or something, and they say, all right, we, we need we're gonna go away for a while. And then I see the new cut three months later, and it's like, where was that film? You know, oh my God, this is so much better. It's a process. Sure is. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you a question, Jim, um, that's very sort of specific and personal. There are multiple references in the film from you and from other people to the notion that society, that American society, wanted people like you to disappear. Or even uh, one one person says they wanted us to die. And... I wonder what that felt like for you, and how did it drive you personally, if at all? You know, Corbett O'Toole said something that needed to be said. And and there's so many uh, people that I've known over the years that teach me about how they see it. I'm, you know, no one person can represent any one group. And if we look at what's happening today, when folks are fighting things like coverage for pre-existing conditions in the ACA or the ACA in general or the attacks on the ADA, the constant, constant attacks on the ADA. What are they, I mean, they, you would think that people understand there's human consequences towards their actions and that, and what they're saying, well, these people don't really matter. I don't care if they suffer. I don't care if so-and-so is going to go bankrupt or not get that surgery they need because they don't, their lives are not valuable. And I think that if you look at our film, one of the things is that I think there's a message about how we all regard each other and how we value each other. And that if we're told that, you know, if your body is not quite what this mythical norm is, that you're less than, then what are you really, really saying? Who's the person inside? And I think that that's one of the many messages that has come out absolutely just, you know, shouted from the mountaintops with our film. And it's like, and, you know, this is not a film about disability as much as if it's a universal story about the, that the struggle for freedom and simply the ability to live a chosen life. But that's what everybody wants. And it's not too expensive. It's not a waste of resources. It's you, you would not want to do that to anybody that you actually care about. And we can certainly do this.
Thank you so much to Jim Lebrecht and Nicole Noonan for joining us. That was such a beautiful sentiment to end the conversation with. Lisa, I know that these were video conversations as well as audio, and you've pulled some video clips from this conversation as well, right? Yes, this was my DIY video studio in my bedroom during COVID last year where we Zoomed with the winners, but we also recorded video on separate cameras at each end. And you can see a few of these excerpts with Jim and Nicole on our onassignmentpodcast.com webpage, as well as links to access the film Crip Camp itself. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad Emily Pisacreta. And this is the part where we talk about our sound engineers, and that would be us. We were our own sound engineers, and I think you can tell. We also had assistance from our program administrator, Melanie Marich. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journ. Until next time.